Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. And today, in this hour, I have my friend Jeff Verdorn joining me for a discussion on his series, Who Is This Jesus? And to get things started, I'm going to read the opening verse that says this. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. What follows that is one of the the most famous sermons in Scripture. It's the Sermon on the Mount, and that is our topic for the full hour. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hello, Jeff. Are you there? Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Welcome, brother. Okay, good. Good. Welcome. I want to give a little bit of an update as what we did last time, because I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've been on the air together in this series, Who Is This Jesus? And then I want to uh, full steam ahead into the Sermon on the Mount. Well, sure. You mentioned that we are in this series, uh, Life of Jesus. This is actually part 13, uh, so we have been numbering them as we go. Um, And we've been discussing everything, well, not everything about Jesus, but many things about Jesus from the Old Testament, from Genesis, all the way through to Revelation, which we will get to towards the latter part of this series. But right now, the last few weeks, we have been in the teachings of Jesus. So we have looked at seven different categories that I kind of used to walk through various different teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the last couple of weeks, we, we started looking at the parables because Jesus actually speaks in parables very often. In fact, there's about 40 different parables in Scripture, which we saw that over 30 of them, about 33, 34, 35, depending on how you count it, relate to salvation. It's kind of like that was one of his biggest topics of all, and that is mm-hmm. salvation. What must I do to be saved? And and that's, this shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And last time we finished up the parables with the parable of the sower, and I think we spent the whole hour, if I recall, on the parable mm-hmm. of the sower. And so now we find ourselves turning to the two longest teachings of Jesus in the Bible, and that is the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse. So what I thought we'd do is the Sermon on the Mount all hour this time, and then next time we would turn to the Olivet Discourse. Okay. Let's jump in then to uh, one of the most famous sermons, if not the most famous sermon in Scripture in Matthew uh, chapter 5 through 7, called the Sermon on the Mount. Well, it it is. Actually, in my notes, I have that this is the most famous sermon ever given in the history of man, and it most surely is. It actually gets its name, the Sermon on the Mount, from the passage you just read, the first two verses of Matthew chapter 5. And the the sermon, by the way, takes up all of chapter Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7. But it says that he went up onto the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So we call this the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I've actually been 
to the Church of the Beatitudes, which is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, near Capernaum, which was Jesus's hometown. And Capernaum, there's a number of ruins in this old uh, first century city uh, that you can explore and see, including the foundation of the synagogue, which Julie, uh, Jesus surely was in. Uh, we don't now for this place on the Sermon on the Mount. We don't know exactly that this was the spot. This spot was actually declared by Constantine's mother, Helena, back in the fourth century. She actually declared a number of different uh, holy sites that we uh, that we see in Jerusalem today, in, including the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where Jesus uh, supposedly, according to Helena, was crucified, buried, and rose again. The Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, where Jesus was supposedly born. Uh, the Church of the Ascension, which is on the top of the Mount of Olives. And this church, the, the Church of the Beatitudes. Now, when I was there, I found myself—the grounds of this place, by the way, are, are beautiful. There's gardens all over the place. There's date palm trees. There's wonderful walking paths. The whole place is just is is beautiful. And you know, they have the uh, scripture writings of the Sermon on the Mount written all over the place in signs and so on. So it's a very quiet and solitude place. And by the way, if you make a little bit noise, a nun will rush over and shush you very, very quickly, <laughs> by the way. Um, but it's a beautiful place. But you know what I found myself doing? I found myself wandering over to the fence or the wall that is around this entire property. And I, I found myself looking out over the hillside that's unimproved. That's there's nothing on it. It's just barren. It's rocky and brushy. And that's where I spent my time when I was there, because that's what the landscape would have looked like in the first century when Jesus was giving this sermon. And and besides, we actually don't know the exact location of the Sermon on the Mount. All that Scripture gives us is that it was on a mountain. And mm -hmm. so other than its declaration in the fourth century that this was the mountain that Jesus gave uh, this sermon on, uh, there's really, uh, you know, not any physical evidence that that was the place. Um, one of the things that many scholars would say to look for is to look for a natural amphitheater type of mm -hmm. Uh, terrain. And actually, there's a number of natural amphitheaters right in this area, including one just down from this, the Church of the Beatitudes, in a little bay right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, that where the, the, the terrain starts rising up, and there's a natural amphitheater there that uh, people have done some videos that showed that you could go up and speak to large crowds, and they could hear you uh, speaking. Wow. So, yeah, it's kind of cool. That's very um, fun. That's very fun. Yeah, so that's just a little geography. And, and, and by the way, I've been to Israel three times. Every time you go there, it is just so amazing to, uh, for example, one of my favorite places and one of my favorite things to do is to actually go out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee, just right off from Capernaum here, and you go out just a you know several hundred yards from shore where Jesus surely would have been, and you read some of the stories about him calming the wind and calming the waves and him walking on water. And it, I tell you, it's an amazingly emotional moment. Oh, I bet. 
Wow. Thanks for sharing those little tidbits. I like that. Mm-hmm. So let's get to the actual text of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter, just an overview here. We'll start with an overview in chapters five and six and seven. So it starts with the Beatitudes. There are eight sayings, which we will look at in detail. Um, many have asked, why aren't there seven? Seven is always kind of this perfect number that is used often. And I don't have the answer to that. The church, actually, the Church of the Beatitudes is an eight-sided church uh, for the eight sayings or blessed sayings of the Beatitudes. But that's how the sermon starts. We then have some of the most famous sayings of Jesus that you are to be salt and light of this world. You are to be the light of this world. Uh, Don't hate your brother. Don't be angry with him. Uh, He comments on lust and adultery and divorce and remarriage. He says the famous line, an eye for, you've heard that it says an eye for an eye and so on. This is where he says, love your enemies. And then right in the middle, about halfway through the sermon in in chapter 5, verse 48, or half the sayings, he says this. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, remember that line for a second. Yeah. He then talks about intimidating. Oh, it's very intimidating. And I want to come back to it. Let's finish the outline and then come back to that saying, be perfect. Okay. He says, give to the needy. He talks about praying. He says how to fast. By the way, praying, this is where we get the Lord's Prayer, which we'll look at briefly. Um, This is where he says to store up your treasures in heaven and to not worry about your life, what to eat or drink or what to wear. Isn't life more important than food? So it's, it's this idea that God will provide for you. This is where he talks about not judging. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. This is where Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate that leads to eternal life and not the broad gate that leads to destruction. And then it ends with this famous saying about a wise man building his house upon the rock. So you can see that that there are many very famous sayings of Jesus that a lot of people, even non-Christians, have heard and read and we've used in in uh, secular media and movies. I've seen many of the statements that are listed in the Sermon on the Mount in, in, in movies at times over the years mm-hmm. and so on. So that's the general outline. Now back to the sermon in general just for a second. Traditionally, all of these statements have generally been taught by Christians and, and, and viewed as the church as a message on how Christians should live. We should be meek. We need to be pure in heart. We need to love our enemies and, and so on. We shouldn't worry about our lives. And it's this kind of uh, list of things that we need to do in order to be a better Christian. Well, remember that word perfect? Mm-hmm. How well can any of us do anything in the Sermon on the Mount, let alone all of it, to be a good Christian? No, not a good Christian, a perfect Christian. This is where I think we need to take a little different look at the Sermon on the Mount because I think there's a more significant meaning here. The message about what a perfect person looks like is not about what we do or how we live, but it's about who we are. 
in Christ. So how do you become perfect, right? Mm. So the the problem with the Sermon on the Mount historically is, is this. Many theologians have said, and I've got a quote here. This is actually from Bible.org. Many theologians say that the ethic taught in the sermon is itself impossible to be lived out in a capitalistic society like we have today. Thus, the struggle with the essence of what Jesus taught, as Luther also taught, who found the sermon difficult to fathom and often mishandled. Luther held this same view as many did before him, claiming that it is through faith and grace that we must presuppose any attempt to obey the Sermon on the Mount. Do you you see what they're all doing? They're all talking about we need to do all the things in the sermon. We need to obey all these things and we need to do it. But how do you obey the command to be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, this is probably a good time to take a break so I can try to Google some kind of answer, Jeff. You got, <laughs> you got me all stressed out. That is a very daunting passage. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We'll continue to discuss that with Jeff Verdorn as we continue our series on Who is This Jesus? Today we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. Get your Bibles open. Matthews chapters 5 through 7. We'll be right back. Please prayerfully consider making a tax-deductible gift to Faith Radio before the year ends. You can give now by texting the word GIVE to 877-933-2484 or join the support team at MyFaithRadio.com. Thank you. The way they keep on telling me Time and time again, boy, you never win You never win but the voice of truth tells me a different story. The voice of truth. Sermon on the Mount. That's what we're talking about today with Jeff Verdorn. If you just joined us, that is in the book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. And Jeff, we're off to a good start, except when we got to the point where it said that uh, hmm. you must be perfect like your Father in Heaven is perfect. That's going to take some explaining, but uh, I don't think we're going there quite yet, are we? You know, when you read this line, if if you can imagine people listening to Jesus and he's saying all these things about, you know, don't be angry with your brother. And someone somewhere in the crowd probably is going, well, yeah, okay, I think I got that one down. And <laughs> don't commit adultery. Okay, I haven't done that. And, you know, keep your oaths. And okay, I keep my, all my oaths and love your enemies. Well, you know, I don't know if I love them totally, but I, you know, I'm not bad. I don't hate anybody. And, you know, you're sitting there thinking, well, I think I've got this down. And then he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is mm-hmm. perfect. And everyone should just, well, I can't do that. How, how can I do that? Like theologians that I read that have come for 2,000 years have said, this is impossible. Yeah. I cannot be perfect as God is perfect. And yet, Scripture says that's exactly what we are in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. You have to remember 
that in the Gospels, all the red letters that are in your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are taught by Jesus, who came under the law. He taught to those under the law. He died under the law. There were no Christians listening to Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount. Christianity doesn't start until Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit comes down after the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. We as Christians have the rest of the New Testament and all Paul's letters and Peter's letters and John's letters that describe who we are, our identity in Christ Jesus once we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. So when we look at the Beatitudes, I want to show you today that the Beatitudes are not something to be achieved. There's something that describes the coming perfect person that God is going to make through faith in Jesus Christ. So when he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he is showing us, for example, when Paul writes in Colossians 1 and verse 28, when he says this, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. We are perfect in Christ. Now, I know that virtually every Christian listening to this is going, well, wait a minute, I've been made perfect, but I certainly don't act that way. I don't feel perfect. I don't act out this perfection. And I say, exactly, you're right. We are made perfect. We are made, let me use a different word. We are made righteous in Christ Jesus. We are called to live righteously, perfectly in this world. I know that nobody does it, Only Jesus did it, which is why we can now, because we're in Christ, the perfect one, be declared righteous by God. And that is what salvation is all about. I think the Beatitudes are more of a picture that Jesus is giving of the new perfect person that he is going to make through faith in him, as much as they are things that we should strive for in this life. And I'll I'll talk Mm -hmm. about that a little bit as well. All right. How about I read what these uh, beatitudes are? Yes. Yeah. Read verses. Uh, yeah. Read three through ten. All right. Matthew chapter th- uh, five, verses three through ten. Here they are. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Perfect. So each of these is kind of like a a conditional statement that says, if you are this then you will be this, or you will receive this promise. What I want to show you quickly is I'm going to use eight New Testament verses to show you that each one of those sayings, that ours is the kingdom of heaven, that will be comforted, that will inherit the earth, that will be filled and be shown mercy and called children of God and so on, are already ours in Christ. 
And we actually have a description of believers that say that each one of these is already ours. So the promises that he is making, for example, in, to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 6, it says that the sinners, the adulterers, the prostitutes, the thieves, the greedies, the drunkards, and so on, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But we, as believers in Christ, who have been sanctified, who have been forgiven and, and, and cleansed by the Spirit of God, we've moved from being someone who's a sinner who won't inherit the kingdom of God to being a saint, someone who will inherit the kingdom of God. So who inherits the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? Only believers. Mm -hmm. That is us. For comforted, 2 Corinthians 1 says that we should be comforting to others, right? Because Mm -hmm. the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others when they need comfort. We have been comforted through faith in Christ. Who inherits the earth? Revelation 21, you go to the back of the book. He who overcomes will inherit all this. God just described the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the the throne of God in in the middle of the city with the tree of life and the river of life coming from it. And at the end of the book, he says, and if you overcome, who is a believer in Christ Jesus, all believers are overcomers in Christ. I've actually done that study on air with you. I don't have time to do it again. But everyone who is a believer in Christ is a quote unquote overcomer. He who overcomes will inherit all this. Who inherits the mm-hmm. earth? All those who believe. Mm-hmm. Who who will be filled? The next one. Well, we've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 tells us that day when the Holy Spirit descends down and fills all who believe. Shown mercy. Who has shown mercy? God has shown every single person who has put their faith and trust in Christ mercy. Titus 3.5 says he saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. We have received mercy. He has shown us mercy through our salvation. Who will see God? Revelation 21, verse 3, one of, the, one of the, the grandest verses in all of Scripture says this. John, who wrote the book of Revelation, says he says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with him. Who will see God? Only those who have believed and are saved. Mm-hmm. All Christians will see God. Who's called a child of God? The next one. John 1 tells us very clearly that you have to believe in his name to become a child of God. The, wor- the world says that all people are children of God. No, only believers our children of God. And finally, the kingdom of heaven, 1 Corinthians 15, that says we will inherit the kingdom of God. So each of these, the, we will receive the kingdom, comforted, filled, shown mercy. All of them are ours in Christ Jesus. Oh, great, great study. Jeff Redorn is my guest. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount. That's in Matthew chapter 5. Get your Bibles out and get a pen handy and a piece of paper. That's the best way to study God's Word as you're starting anew in 2023. We'll be right back. If you have a question or comment, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. 
a mysterious star in the sky. It's bright like one and shines like one. A baby lying in a manger. There he is, after all this time. And a fulfilled promise. You will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. In Fulfillment is a biblical audio drama, over 40 voice actors, and the fulfilled moments of Jesus' life. Search In Fulfillment wherever you listen to podcasts, or just go to myfaithradio.com. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. If you just joined me, my guest today is Jeff Verdorn. We're talking about his uh, series called Who is This Jesus? This is part 13, and we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And I just had a great text that came in from a listener as we were talking about being perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Of course, the word perfect throws everybody into a a significant tailspin, including myself when I think I first read that uh, decades ago, and I thought, oh, how do you be perfect like your Father is perfect? And and over time, you understand what that means, and just had a great uh, text to him. And Jeff, did you see that one? I did. Good. Um, yeah, so let's, let's wrap up our perfection kind of discussion, well, shall we? Let's do it, because it's a good one. And the comment that came in is, is lovely, and it's uh, talking about uh, perfect is an unfortunate rendering within Matthew 5.48. Our usual connotation of perfect is flawless, without any mistake. However, the Greek word from which perfect is Typically, the English translation has instead the idea of complete, whole, fully, functional. So in context, when Jesus is saying that portion of the Sermon on the Mount, he is indicating for us to be complete by loving our enemies right along with anyone and everyone else. This goes against the love your neighbor and hate your enemy and similar statements from earlier chap- uh, from earlier in chapter 5. So, Yeah, so this is... This brings up what I was describing at the very beginning about how uh, many look at the admonitions that are throughout, actually, the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7, that somehow we need to do these things in order to become complete, as as the word of the listener, or, <clears throat> excuse me, become perfect. So, my my uh, theology says that we are made perfect or that we are made complete by faith in Christ. That's how we receive our righteousness. Theologians call this kind of uh, imputed righteousness is a phrase that theologians would we use will use. First uh, Corinthians five actually the last verse in First Corinthians five says that uh, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might be made or become the righteousness of God. So I believe this perfection that Jesus is talking about, and and your listeners right, the Greek kind of has this idea of completeness uh, in it. That, but this completeness is described by Paul, I believe, in this idea of imputed righteousness, that we are made righteous. How? How are we made righteous? Are, do we have to do all the things that Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in order to achieve this righteousness? Or is righteousness something that is given to us by God, by his grace, when we believe? And so I believe that our righteousness 
is our perfection comes the moment we believe and are saved. God makes him, us, to be the righteousness of God. In, in order to really understand this, you, you have to understand this idea that we are three parts. We are a body, we are a soul, and we are a spirit. So while we have been made perfect, we, like I said earlier, we don't feel perfect. We struggle to act perfectly. That's because our perfection is a spiritual perfection. It is our spirit that is made perfect. This spirit, which this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3 says that Adam died that day. His spirit died that day. And this idea of being made alive in Christ, that's our spiritual birth. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus, that flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. When we are perfected, we're perfected spiritually. Our spirit comes alive. It's united with God, united with Christ. And that is how we are made righteous spiritually. Now, our soul in the Greek, that's the word suke, our soul, that's where we get the word psychology, by the way. Our soul is where we where we make decisions. It's our mind, our will, our emotion, how we how we think, what we decide to do. Our soul is not perfected yet, just like our body is not perfected yet. The great news, that's the bad news. The great news is one day our whole body soul, and spirit will be perfect on that day when we are resurrected to glory, and that will be our eternal condition, our eternal dwelling. So, so yes, the, the definition of the word, I think your listener has right, I still can, I, 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 I take a little different take because I believe we're made complete through faith, not by loving our enemies or praying for those who persecute you or so on. Are those things that God admonishes us to do? Yes, as we go through some of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see that virtually everything that Jesus says on how to live, we can find examples of those descriptions in the New Testament that God's saying, once I've saved you, I want you to live a holy life in this world, set apart from the rest of this world, not acting like the world does, but acting like I want you to be this perfect. So when he says, basically, I've made you holy, God mm -hmm. now calls us to live holy. Yeah. And Jeff, another listener from a very smart area code texted in and said, <laughs> I've been told that the word perfect in that verse means holy. Um, I can't remember if holy is in the definition. I'd, I'll, I'll look it up at break, but okay. um, uh, it, it, it has this, it, there is this idea of completeness of perfection. And I would argue, yeah, that the whole theme that I'm describing is kind of this holiness. You know, we were a sinner. We've now been made a saint, holy, righteous, perfect, blameless in his sight, not because what we have done, but because what he has already done. Mm -hmm. And that is to take our sins away on the cross. And now we've received forgiveness and we've been made new. So let's look at some of the admonitions then uh, throughout the rest of the scripture. And we'll show that these are actually all concepts that we are, we, we are, in other words, those who want to say, this is how you should live. That is right. 
This is how we should live. For example, the first one is Matthew 5, uh, verse 14. It says, let your light shine. Well, we are light. We are children of light, the New Testament tells us. The world is a dark place, and God wants us to not hide our lamp under a a basket, but to let it shine. Paul says it this way in Romans. He says, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed. He says to the Philippians that you are to shine like stars in the universe. Our lives should look differently than the rest of the world's lives look. So all the one another's, for example, in Scripture, where it says to love one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another's, that's what our lives should look like. We should be, because the world doesn't do those things, but we should. So the admonition, Jesus is describing the perfect Christian, if you will, perfected, be perfect, therefore, and a perfect person, one who is in Christ Jesus, should let their light shine in this world. Mm, I like that. All right, Jeff, uh, what would be another admonition? Well, he says that love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, starting in verse 44. I think this is actually one of the hardest. Um, I have a tendency to kind of like the sons of thunder, right? When you see enemies of God, you want to bring down your judgment, Lord. And I call it, actually, I call it the Jonah complex, right? Because we had a guy named Jonah and God told him to go preach to this city. And he said, nah, I don't want to go there. I want you to judge them, God. So this is kind of the Jonah complex. Um, I will point out that I think some get this a little off in that this is not our enemies like, you know, like the like Nazi Germany was our enemies or Imperial Japan was our enemies. This is not an admonition to love those you are you're fighting in war, for example. These enemies, I believe, are those who oppose God. Remember, Paul says that that some who are not believers are enemies of ours on account of the gospel. In other words, they're not believers. I think that's who God is talking about. So when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that those are the ones, the unbelievers, who who have rejected God, who say Christianity is foolish and are going to persecute you or may persecute you because of your faith. Um, and uh, and so that's, I believe, who the enemies are. And we're to, we're to love them. And I think it's the same kind of love that God says that he has for the world. For God so loved the world. That means everyone, not just believers, but everyone in the, in the world. And we are to love them with the love of Christ. This does not mean that we, we can't have, you know, wars, nations have been attacked for all of mankind's history. It also doesn't mean that you can't defend yourself physically when you're being attacked. That's not what this passage means. Mm-hmm. And then it makes me wonder, Jeff, when it says love your enemies, how did you get enemies in the first place? Well, yeah, because uh, because they oppose God. You know, there's this line in, in, I think it's in the Psalm, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at the world, they are foolish. They are deceived. They are believing all kinds of lies. They, when When Jesus says, you're either with me or you are against me. And those who are against Jesus are those who don't believe in his name. They haven't received him as Lord and Savior. Those Mm -hmm. are our enemies. All right. All right. What next? 
Well, let's skip to chapter 6, and let's go to verse 9, where Jesus says, this is how you should pray. I mean, this is maybe the most famous part of the most famous sermon, and that is what is called the Lord's Prayer, often. Now, it probably, as many have pointed out, be called the Disciples' Prayer, because this is actually Jesus instructing his disciples on how to pray. Um, man, there have been so many great sermons on the Sermon of the Mount. I mean, we don't have time to go into the details of all the things that are here, but let me just point out a couple things. First, right before this, it says, your father knows what you need before you ask him, verse eight. That's right before this. I love that. And remember, he says, don't be like the Pharisees who are always looking for the street corner and, 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 and for the recognition that they are righteous and holy by their long and elaborate prayers. And I think the picture is your father knows what you need before you ask him. Don't pray for men to see, verse 5. It says, it, Jesus says, for they have received their reward. Isn't that the rub? They've received mm-hmm. they've received the praise of men, and that's all. That's it. So this is not a prayer, I don't believe, to be repeated over and over and over like the church has done. I think it's a pattern to be followed. Father, you are holy. Only you. The earth is yours and everything in it. You're a thrice Holy God, your plans, your ways are not our ways. A recognition that God is God and we are not. He is Mm -hmm. the creator and maker of everything, the one who gives life to everything. God alone is holy. His provision, thy daily bread. We, in this century, in this country, most of us don't know what true need really is. But your average first century Jew did. And Mm -hmm. so they were praying to God, which he promised earlier that he loves us more than the birds, right? He will provide. And so it's a prayer of asking God, Lord, provide for me. And then he says, he turns to salvation. And basically when he talks about forgive us our debts, this is what happens when we believe in Christ. We are forgiven. We stand forgiven. Once again, painting a picture, a future picture of those who will be be forgiven before God, and that is every Christian, which will come later. And then finally, this great prayer of protection. I can tell you that in my own personal prayer life, a prayer of protection is probably one of the most common things that I pray for. And that is because I understand that this world, the whole world, is it, John writes, the whole world is in control of the evil one. He's the prince of this world, the god of this age. He is an enemy of every believer. He is trying to kill and steal and destroy. And if there is evil in this world, and and God says that in some way that we don't even can't even fathom, he is restraining this evil. Mm-hmm. And I think if he wasn't restraining evil, I don't, I don't, I think the church would be destroyed. It would be killed completely, but he's restraining evil. And so one of my most common prayers is keep us from evil, Lord, protect us. And so that's a pattern 
that I think he's given us to follow. Mm -hmm. Well, the Lord's Prayer not only is a model for prayer, but I'm living in both camps. Not only do I know that it's a model for prayer, but I also like saying the prayer because it's so concise and so beautiful. So I, that comes out of my heart almost daily, this prayer. I actually do too. I have a group that says it every time. And, and so I teach it's not a prayer to be repeated over and over again, but my group, we have some several people in there that love to say the Lord's Prayer, and we do. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Jeff Verdorn is my guest. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, we'll continue our discussion on the Sermon on the Mount. That's in Matthew chapter 5, um, and 6 and 7. Be right back. Thanks so much for listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Hey, I'm Susie Larson. If you enjoy what you're finding here, consider subscribing to some of our other faith radio podcasts, like mine, for instance. You can search Susie Larson Live at myfaithradio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. Back with my friend Jeff Verdorn, and we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. If you just joined us, you've missed a lot of good teaching. We're now going to wrap up our hour talking about the treasures in heaven. What a great idea that is, Jeff. Hmm. Yeah, so the next section is this admonition did not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but to store up your treasures in heaven. Now, I think one thing that some will take this and and preach that we can't have material possessions, that we shouldn't as Christians have material possessions. And I don't think that's the admonition here by Jesus. I think he's saying, where are your treasures? What are the things that you treasure and where are you storing those? Of course, we put our earthly possessions are money in banks and we have safe to put things that are valuable because we don't want them stolen. But what are we trusting in? Where's our heart? I think this in the end is a heart thing. And our knowing that our greatest, greatest possession is eternal life. And that's what's kept in heaven for us. So I think it's an admonition of what we what we trust in. And and the greatest possession that we have completely is our eternal life. So mm-hmm. it's not an admonition not to have stuff. Now, mm-hmm. if you have way too much stuff, uh, you know, that might be a signal, but it's not an admonition not to have any possessions at all. So um, the next section is do not worry. Um, this one always gets me as well. I don't know if it gets you, but – One of my favorite verses is the Philippians 4, 6, and 7 verse, where Paul says, Do not worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, bring your requests to God. And then he says, The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I think the opposite of of trust is worrying. 
we're to cast our cares onto the Lord, we're to cast all of our anxieties on him, 1 Peter 5 says, and to not worry, but be happy. That's, that's you know the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby, mm-hmm. he was a Christian, by the way, Bobby McFerrin was a Christian. And I think he had that verse in mind, actually, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't worry, be happy, be joyful always, Paul says. Um, so worry, don't worry, trust. Don't have fear, have faith. Don't doubt, have certainty in what God has promised. Hebrews 11, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of things not seen. That's what Jesus is saying. Same as what Paul says, don't worry about your life. God will provide for you. Doesn't he love you more than the birds? Isn't that Mm -hmm. a great promise of God? It is, Jeff. And can any one of you by worrying at a single hour to your life? Yeah, he doesn't answer that question, but clearly the answer is no, <laughs> right? Right, right. 633, oh, one of the great lines of this sermon, for seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Hmm. You know, I remember in high school studying Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I don't oh, know sure. if you remember studying that. I yeah. do remember that, yeah. The, the and, triangle. And it is a triangle. And he said, mm-hmm. and, and it's been taught to virtually every high school kid since, and it's basically the core understanding of, of how we get our needs met. And that is that we need our, our physiological needs met first, our food, our water, our sleep. Um, then we need safety. We need a, a safe place to, to live and, and, and a roof over our head. And then we need a love and belonging kind of need of, of friendship and family and, and intimacy. And then we get to this point of self-actualization where we start thinking of things. Once all those other needs are met, well, then we can achieve some of the higher needs of of creativity and and discovery and and so on and then there's kind of a a, a last one that's not specifically listed but it's implied and that is a, a self transcendent kind of uh, a peak of this needs pyramid and that is where someone can seek truth or spiritual fulfillment and and finally unconditional love right well that's what the world believes and yet god takes that pyramid and he flips it entirely <laughs> on its head. Yeah. And he says, no, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek the spiritual first and then all of these things will be added unto you. Isn't it just like God that his ways are always 180 degrees opposite of man's ways? I love it. Mm-hmm. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble of its own. How true is that? Oh. And, and if you, you think about this, this is a truth that is all over Scripture. Trust in Him with all of your hearts, Proverbs 3. Greatest commandment of all is love the Lord your God. Abide in Him, John 15. Fix your eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12. Set your mind on things above. Store up your treasures in heaven. That's what He says is the greatest of all, is to seek Him first. And then all of these things will be added unto you. I think we can remember that one command, the greatest command, and that is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind. And when we do that, I think we'll be in a very good place when it comes to all of these other things. 
I would agree, Jeff Verdorn. All right, we don't have a lot of time left. We have time, I'm sure, to touch on one more. I don't think we jump into judging others, do we? No, that one would take. Let's go to Matthew 7, 7, where he says, ask, seek, knock, because this is kind of the culmination of what we are just talking about. I I have read and heard it speak that this is a picture of uh, being persistent in prayer to God, asking him again and again and seeking and knocking and and being persistent in your prayers. And once again, I think we come back to the simple truth of this is a picture of salvation, that when you ask, when you seek him, Scripture says you will find him when you seek him with all of your hearts. Jeremiah 33, 3, call on the Lord and he will answer you. That's God's phone number, right? Jeremiah 33, 3, call on him. And Joel 2 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Revelation 3 reverses the knocking, but I think it's the same picture. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. I think this asig knock ultimately is when anyone turns to God, when anybody asks and seeks and knocks God, he will answer each and every person. He will answer whosoever because he said, whosoever believes in me shall not perish but have eternal life. So once again, I think that the ask, seek, knock is a picture of salvation ultimately. Mm-hmm. Jeff, it was an ambitious hour to try to cover the Sermon on the Mount. I think we did a nice nice job of touching a lot of the um, the really important elements of the sermon. So thank you for this discussion. It's been great. Oh, it's uh, this is wonderful. I, I want one personal note. I yep. actually had 5, 6, and 7 memorized about 20 years ago. I couldn't do it today, oh, but it's wow. the largest section of, of Scripture that I ever personally memorized, and I, and I loved doing it. Yeah, you need some prison time. That'll get you a chance to <laughs> reboot those three chapters. <laughs> All right, I Jeff, don't have plan a great on that anytime okay, soon. I don't I know you don't. All right. Have a great rest of the evening. Thanks, Bill. You bet. Jeff Dorn has been my guest, and that's our show for today. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope if you missed any of it, you can head over to the podcast and you can see that at myfaithradio.com, the afternoon with Bill show. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.